0: We learned from the Sahaba Radhi anhum, living as a minority. Uh, sometimes we fail to notice that Rasulullah lived the majority of his da'wah life as a minority among a non Muslim society. Thirteen years Out of the 23 years of da'wah, we're lived as a religious minority in a non-Muslim society, in Mecca. So there is much to learn. There is a lot in Sirah for us to learn from, to guide us, when we are living as minorities in the West. Not much has been written about the subject because our early Muslim scholars did not give it a lot of attention since they did not go through this situation themselves. And since our early Muslim scholars were very practical, they would only look at what relates to their practical daily life, Uh, they didn't particularly give the Mecca era a lot of attention. So a lot of work has to be done by us to derive lessons out of these 13 years Rasulullah ﷺ and the Sahaba spent as a minority. There are a few lessons that we could uh, talk about. Uh, number one, when Allah subhanahu wa Taala revealed the ayah, وَأَنذِرْ عَشِيرَتَكَ الْأَقْرَبِينَ This is an ayah that was revealed to Muhammad ﷺ commanding him to declare the message publicly. Initially, the da'wah was secret. Rasulullah ﷺ was preaching the message to his close associates, and it was not done publicly. He spoke to his wife Khadija, to his uh, adopted son Zayd bin Haritha, to uh, Abu Bakr as siddiq to uh, Ali bin Abi Talib, whom Rasulullah ﷺ was raising in his household. He, he spoke to the people who are around him, but he did not declare the message publicly. This was the initial, initial stage of da'wah. The, sec- the next stage was the command from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to publicly declare the message. What Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi sallam did is, he stood on the mountain of Safa, or the hilltop of Safa, and he started calling in the people of Quraysh. Wa Subaha, Wa Subaha, is like ringing the alarm. It's a word that is only used when there is a dire situation, when there is something dangerous, in an emergency. That's when the word subahah is used. So Rasulullah ﷺ was calling the people. Obviously, they understood this to be an emergency, so they all rushed to the source of the sound. And they came to Rasulullah ﷺ under the the hill of As-Safa. And whoever wasn't able to go would send somebody to convey... The news back to them. So when they all gathered, Rasulullah ﷺ told them If I tell you that there is an army behind this mountain that is about to ambush you, would you believe me? They said, You have never lied to us before. We don't have any reason to disbelieve you. You are the truthful and honest. Al-Sadiq al-Amin, that's the nickname they gave to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa So whatever you tell us, we'll believe it. Even if you tell us that there's an army right behind this hilltop that is about to attack us. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa then said, فَإِنِّي نَذِيرٌ لَكُمْ بَيْنَ يَدَيْ عَذَابٍ أَلِيمٍ I came to deliver to you a warning before a severe punishment befalls you. Now, the people of Quraysh already knew what Muhammad Sallam was talking about. They knew that he was preaching a new religion. It wasn't a secret. One man from Kindah, he came to visit Mecca before. And, uh, and he saw this man coming, walking out of his tent and praying. And then a woman came out and uh, prayed. And then uh, a young man came out and prayed. So... This man asked Al Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib, What are these people doing? I mean, he saw them doing some strange movements. It was salah, but he didn't know what they were doing. So he asked Al Abbas, Who are these people and what are they doing? Al Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib said, Well, that man who came out of the tent first is my nephew, Muhammad, salawatullahi wasalamu alayhi. And the woman who followed him was his wife Khadija. And the young man was Ali bin Abi Talib. And they were praying. Because Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam claims to be a prophet of God and is preaching a new religion. And that these words were said while the message was in the secretive stage. But the news was out there and the people of Quraysh knew that Muhammad sallallahu alaihi was preaching a new religion, but he wasn't doing it publicly. So when Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam stood on a safa and said, I came to warn you, to deliver a warning to you that a severe punishment will befall you if you don't believe, they knew what he was talking about. Abu Lahab responded and said, laka sair ali hadha May evil befall you the rest of your day. Is this why you called us? Now Abu Lahab was a businessman. And Rasulullah sallallahu الله عليه called them during the official business hours. So he took time off of work to go and listen to what was going on. And he thought it was an emergency. And here it is, Muhammad sallallahu الله speaking about religion. So Abu Lahab was quite aggravated by that because religion was not on his mind. He was a businessman, busy making wealth and money. So he told Muhammad Wasallam, is that all what you had to say to us? Is this why you called us? May evil befall you the rest of your day. And subhanallah, Abu Lahab is not unique in that. Usually you would find that people do not want to give religion a lot of time. People don't want to think about their salvation. They don't want to think about what will happen to them after death. Just go to Victoria Station and look at the faces of the people, how they are rushing around, running like robots, chasing dunya, like a wolf is chasing a prey in a forest. And if you ask a person to give you half an hour of their time to talk about religion they'll tell you we're busy. We don't have time for that. But the same person doesn't have a problem spending hours and hours reading newspapers, uh, searching for information on how to buy a refrigerator, which is the best brand, and how to save a few bucks here and there. I would spend hours and hours uh, when I, before I want to buy a used car. I would read the Blue Book. In the U.S. we have what is called the Blue Book. It has the prices of used cars. So I'll go out to the library, check out the blue book, look at the prices, and then I will go in the classified ads in the newspaper and see what is the best deal. And days and days of my life are wasted so that I'll save some money when I buy a used car. But I'm not willing to give time to listen to religion. Abu Lahab was busy with business. Leave me alone. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed, tabbat yada abi lahabi watab. May uh, his hands perish, and perish he. And then Allah Subhanahu wa Taala said, anhu maluhu wa His wealth and his money will not do him any good. What is keeping keeping him away from listening to the message? Business, wealth, making money, in the end, will not do him any good. It will be the cause of his demise. Anyway. Uh, Rasulullah chose this message to proclaim the message to proclaim Islam. He said, I came to warn you a severe punishment. Rasulullah did not choose an interfaith activity or another method to convey this message. He wanted to make it very plain and clear because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala laid out his job description. As clear as it can be. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him, Wama mubin إِلَّ <الْمُبِين> Your role is to convey the message, بَلَاغ. بَلَاغ means convey the message. But not only to convey it, but it was stipulated with mubin. The بَلَاغ has to be mubin, And mubin means very clear. Clear as the sun. So you leave no confusion in the mind of the listener. You make it very plain. So that they know exactly what's going on. You make the path to paradise very clear and the path to hellfire very clear. You don't throw in any ambigu- ambiguity. You don't make it confusing. And I'm saying this because many times in our da'wah we, we send a very confused message. Rasulullah ﷺ stood on the minbar. And this hadith is in Bukhari. And the, 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 the hadith of safa in Bukhari, this hadith is in Musnad Imam Ahmad, Rasulullah ﷺ said, he was standing on the minbar. and the sahabi an bin Bashir says that Rasulullah ﷺ was on the pulpit and he was saying, "...anthartukumu al-naar, anthartukumu al-naar, anthartukumu al-naar." "...hatta law anna rajulun ba-sooqi, lasami' al-rasul ﷺ wa al-al-minbar." an bin Bashir said, Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi sallam stood on the pulpit and delivered a speech to us. What was his speech? He said, I warn you hellfire. I warn you hellfire. I warn you hellfire. And he was repeating it again and again. And the volume of his voice was going up and up. And Na'amar ibn Bashir said if there was somebody in the marketplace, they would be able to hear Muhammad Sallallahu from the masjid. So Rasulullah Sallallahu wanted to make it very clear to the people that Islam is the criteria between truth and falsehood and if you follow this religion, the end destination is Jannah and if you don't, then the end destination is hellfire. No confusion, no ambiguity in the message. We are very reluctant in our da'wah to speak about Jannah and for various reasons. I sometimes find it very hard to uh, speak to a non-Muslim in these plain terms and say that the consequences of not becoming a Muslim are hellfire. I find it very difficult to say that. And I think that many of you might share the same feeling. Because you don't want to hurt the feelings of others. But this is a wrong assumption. It's a wrong understanding. Which is better, to hurt their feelings temporarily or to be complacent and having such a person burn in hellfire for eternity? Rasulullah وسلم says, this hadith is in Muslim, إنما مثلي ومثلكم كمثل رجل استوقد نارا فجعلت هذه الدواب والفراش يقعنا فيها فَأَنَا آخِذٌ بِحُجَزِكُمْ وَأَنْتُمْ في النار. Rasulullah says, the analogy of me and you is like someone sitting next to a bonfire in the wilderness. And insects and bugs are trying to fly into it. You know when you have a source of light at night. Uh, insects are attracted to it. If you have a source of light, you would find that all of these moths and flying insects, are attracted to the source of light. If you have fire, they would be misled into thinking that this is light and they would jump into it, not knowing that it is a fire that would burn them. So, not knowing, they would kill themselves. Rasulullah said that, I am like a person sitting next to this bonfire in the wilderness. And people are like these insects rushing into the fire. While I'm grabbing bihujazikum, al izar. Bihujazikum is I'm holding your clothes. Dragging you away from the fire. antum تَقَحَمُونَ فِيهَا fiha means يدخلوا فِي الْأَمْرِ مِن غَيرِ تَثَبّتٍ وَالْأَرَوِيَةٍ It means that, uh, تَقَحَمُونَ فِيهَا that you are rushing into a situation without thinking about it. Without giving it the right consideration. So Rasulullah صلى الله عليه وسلم is saying that people are jumping into the fire without thinking about it, without giving it the right consideration, while I'm trying to keep them away from it. And I'm dragging them by their clothes, trying to help them, and they're slipping out of my hands. They're forcing themselves into the fire. This is how Rasulullah ﷺ viewed his mission. He wanted to save the people, and he knew that dragging them out of the fire was for their benefit. So he was taking that drastic measure, by trying to pull the people away from danger while they are refusing to listen to him. If you have a uh, uh if there's a ditch and you see a blind person walking towards that ditch, and you know that in a few steps that blind person could fall into the ditch and die. You're not gonna soft pedal, you're not gonna be very polite and 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 kind and and and, and nice in trying to warn that blind person, because you know that if you take your time, the blind person would be dead. What do you do? You scream. Be careful. Now if you scream at a person, when there's no danger, that would be impolite, and it would be seen as a violent act of aggression. But in that particular situation, it's not seen as aggression. You would be thanked and praised for your care and concern for that person. And this is how a Muslim should be. We should be concerned about what is happening to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers, to the people whom we live with. It is a sign of ingratitude. We're being ungrateful. We're being, uh, we're not being concerned if we know that our neighbors and friends Their fate is hellfire, and we're doing nothing about it. So our first role as a Muslim minority living among Muslims is to proclaim the message publicly. And when we convey the message, we convey it in very plain and clear terms, with no confusion. I mean, it is not justice to deliver the message to a person and not make the consequences clear to them and then this person would come on the Day of Judgment and say, Oh Allah, they did not give me a fair warning. The message was not made clear to me. I was told that this is exact, exactly just like any other religion. We're just like you. That, that is what I was told. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّ الدِّينَ اللَّهِ الْإِسْلَامِ Allah made it very clear that the only religion acceptable in the eyes of Allah is Islam. So we are fooling others when we, when, they tell them that, when we tell them that Islam is like your religion. I mean, sometimes we try to be polite and say, there's no difference. No, there is difference. This is the path to Jannah and that is the path to hellfire. And it is difficult for me to do that and I feel that it's maybe difficult for many of you. But the truth is the truth and we need to state it. So the first thing is that we have balagh Mubeen. Now, also on the other hand. Uh, we have to have hikmah in conveying the message. See, Islam is the middle way. You have, you have two extremes in every situation, and then you have a middle way. So we talked about the extreme of, of uh, sugarcoating and, and not being honest in conveying the message, but we also need to make sure that we don't become arrogant when we're conveying the message that we don't uh, uh, commit aggression when we're conveying the message. And the example I like to give in how we should make da'wah is uh, think about yourself in the delivery business. You are working with DHL, or I I don't know what you would call it over here, but in America we have DHL, we have uh, FedEx, UPS. You're delivering packages, all right? So you have a package with you. The package needs to be delivered to the people. Now, you have no right to tamper with the contents of the package. Because the package is from Allah. You don't have a right to play with the contents, to change it, to compromise it, to add to it, to subtract from it. The message is from Allah. This package has to be delivered the way it is. You cannot change the contents of it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa if you do not convey the message in its entirety, you have not conveyed the message. If you don't convey the whole thing, then you haven't conveyed anything. So we have to convey the, pa- the, the package as it is, intact, without opening it, without tampering with it. So where does the wisdom come into play? It is the method of conveying the package. So rather than knocking on the door with a hammer... And then when the person opens the door, you throw the package in their face. No, you knock the door very politely. And then when they open the door, you have a big smile on your face. And you deliver the package and you say... Uh, you, any polite words, I don't remember what they usually say uh, when they deliver UPS packages. But they do it in a very kind manner. I mean, you... Uh, with, with I, I had this uh, uh, African American uh, person. He was the one who was working with UPS in my area, and he would deliver the packages. And Subhanallah, the method he would deliver the package uh, is is so wonderful and 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 nice. And even though he would speak a very few words, uh, but you feel that he's involved in his job and he wants to do it the best way he can. Uh, and that is the impression you should give to the person you're making da'wah to. You should make them feel that you have confidence in your message, that you love it, that it, says it means everything to you, and that you're very keen to deliver this gift to the other person. So this is the hikmah, And uh, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, al <laughs> Hasana. Uh, one of the du'a he, he explained the word hikmah to mean uh, saying the right thing, the right time, the right place to the right person. You do it right. Number two, the second lesson we could learn from Rasulullah and the Sahaba living as a minority is. Focusing on building a solid foundation. اقرأ قم, قم. Remember these three words. اقرأ قم, قم We can say that this was the manual of the Muslims in Mecca. The first ayat revealed to Rasulullah ﷺ, اقرأ bismi ربك الذي خلق Read or recite in the name of your Lord who created. Reading, learning. Now the word iqra in Arabic could mean read and can mean recite. In the case of Rasulullah ﷺ, it means recite. Rasulullah ﷺ was not obligated to read. He was illiterate and he remained illiterate until his death. Why does Rasulullah ﷺ have to learn how to read when he has been taught directly by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? What purpose would reading serve Muhammad when he is receiving the angel Jibril to come with knowledge straight from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So it served no purpose for Rasulullah to learn how to read. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that if you were a person who was literate, then the non-believers would have said that he learned it from another source. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that would cause doubts in the hearts of the wrongdoers. So there was a wisdom behind Muhammad being illiterate. But for us, we're never going to receive any revelation. Therefore, for us, we have to learn how to read. And that's why Islam made a revolution among the Muslims and turned them from being an illiterate nation into being the scholars of the world, the learned society among humanity in a very short time. So for us, we have to learn... We have to study. We have to give importance and precedence to knowledge. So the first thing that Rasulullah sallallahu wa did in Mecca. What was the first institution that Rasulullah wa sallam, actually the first and only institution that Rasulullah wa established in Mecca? What was it? Dar al-Arqam. The first and only institution Rasulullah wa established in Mecca was Dar al-Arqam, a center for learning, collective learning. And what was the first institution that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa established in Medina? Al-Masjid Al-Nabawi. A center for learning and worshipping. So, ilm is something that we need to learn as a, as a Muslim minority. Learning knowledge. Qum. The second ayat revealed to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ya ayyuhal Oh you, wrapped up in your garments, stand up and deliver the warning. When Rasulullah ﷺ first had contact with Jibreel for the first time, Rasulullah ﷺ rushed home. He was shivering and cold. And he told Khadija, رضي الله عنها, Zamilini زمّليني Wrap me up in my garments. Rasulullah ﷺ was shivering and feeling cold. So he asked his wife to wrap him up in garments. Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam you have to stand up. You have to stand up and deliver the warning. Now that you learned, now that you have the knowledge, you must deliver it. You must warn the people. You must teach them the knowledge that you learned. You cannot just learn knowledge for yourself. Now that you learned it, the next stage is to teach it and convey it. Qum Stand up and warn. And then the third set of ayat that were revealed to Muhammad وسلم were al Muzammil قُمِ اللَّيْلَ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا Now that you have learned the knowledge and you are warning, you have to have ibadah that goes alongside with da'wah and learning. Ibadah is a must that should go along with this. Otherwise the heart would become solid like a rock. So, Ibadah goes along with da'wah and learning. There can be no learning and no da'wah without a strong backbone of Ibadah. And because the Muslims were in the stage of foundation, setting the foundation, Salah for them was not prescribed as five daily prayers. Salah for them was praying for a whole third of the night illa You have to pray. It was obligatory on them. It was mandatory that they have to pray Qiyam al-Layl, and that was a special requirement for the generational foundation. They needed to have an additional dose of ibadah. For us, it became. Voluntary, recommended, strongly recommended ibadah, but for them it was mandatory. Now for the du'a, for the one who is in the field of da'wah, uh, ibadah becomes important to them like it was for the sahaba, because they are the ones who are leading the ummah. Therefore, qiyamul layl and these ibadahs are very, very important to go alongside with da'wah and teaching. So as a Muslim minority living in the West, we have to have these three components. This is our manual book. اقرأ قم قم This is the foundation of any دعوة. Learning, which is food for the mind. دعوة, you're paying the taxes on what you learned and you're conveying it to others. We know the punishment of كتما العلم, concealing knowledge. And then عبادة, which is food for the heart. Number three, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala corrected the understanding of the Muslims in Mecca. It gave them a new definition to many of the terminologies that already existed in the language. But it gave a new definition to these terminologies. One of them is the understanding of victory. What constitutes victory? For the Arabs living in Arabia, victory was you raid the neighboring tribe and you take over their wealth. So the, the, the more oppressive you are, the more victorious you are seen. That was the rule of the jungle that existed in Arabia. In fact, they have poetry uh, priding oppression. If you go and raid the other tribe and you kill them and you take their money, then you're good. Islam came and gave a new definition to many of these terminologies that they are or, or concepts. I should rather call it concepts than terminology. Islam gave a new definition to many of these concepts that they had. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks in Surah Al-Buruj about Ahlul Akhdud. وَالسَّمَاءِ ذَاتِ الْبُرُوجِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْمَوْعُودِ وَشَاهِدٍ وَمَشْهُودٍ قُتِلَ أَصْحَابُ الْأُخْدُودِ النَّارِ ذَاتِ الْوَقُودِ إِذْ هُمْ عَلَيْهَا قُعُودٌ وَهُمْ عَلَى مَا يَفْعَلُونَ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ شُهُودٌ وَمَا نَقَمُوا مِنْهُمْ إِلَّا أَنْ يُؤْمِنُوا بِاللَّهِ الْعَزِيزِ الْحَمِيدِ الَّذِي لَهُ مُلْكُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَاللَّهُ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ شَهِيدٌ الله سبحانه وتعالى speaks about the story of اهل الاخدود اهل الاخدود are a people who accepted the message ...of Isa alayhi salam, the true message of Jesus. They became followers of Isa alayhi The king and his people were uh, followers of the Jewish faith. So they persecuted the true Christians, the followers of Isa. And it is reported that this story happened in the northern parts of Yemen... The king wanted to force the people to give up their religion. And there is a long hadith in Sahih Muslim that talks about the story of al ghulam and some scholars relate the story of ghulam to this historical event. The king, after he saw that the people became Muslim, followers of Isa, he commanded his soldiers to build trenches, to dig trenches and to fill them with fire. And anyone who refuses to give up their religion, just throw them alive in the fire. So he burned alive all of the believers. Every single one of these believers was burned alive. They were all killed. Now, in worldly terms, this king prevailed. He won. He killed all of the Muslims. They were all burned alive. These Muslims didn't establish the Khilafah. They were killed. So did they lose or did they win? Was this victory or was it loss? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not only called it victory, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, That is the great victory. Why? Because they achieved the greatest success of all and that is the pleasure of Allah in Jannah. So victory doesn't necessarily mean that you win in dunya, but it means that you are able to hold firm on the religion of Allah until death comes to you. So you are steadfast until the last moment. Whether you establish khilafah or not, whether you win in a certain battle or not, as long as you are steadfast on the message, you have won. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, al رِجَالٌ صَدَقُوا مَا عَاهَدُوا اللَّهَ عَلَيْهِ فَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ قَضَى نَحْبَهُ وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ يَنْتَظِرُ وَمَا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, among the believers are those who are true to the covenant with Allah, with their covenant to Allah. Of them... Some have completed their vow, and some are waiting. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, But they never gave up their determination in the least. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the believers have a covenant with Allah. Some of them died. And these who have died, they have completed their vow with Allah. And others are waiting. So as long as you are alive, you have a vow, you have a covenant with Allah. Until you die. If you stick to that vow with Allah until you die, no matter what happens in this dunya, you have won. And the sahaba used to say that, one of them is Musa bin Umayr. Mus'ab bin Umayr died when? He died in the battle of Uhud which was a loss to the Muslims. But they said that he is one of those who fulfilled his covenant with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even though he died in a battle which the Muslims have lost. But he is victorious because he was able to hold firm on the covenant with Allah until the day of judgment. So you bring a Muslim, you give that Muslim the banner of Islam, you throw them in the middle of a hurricane, and then you send on top of their heads a tornado wait until the dust comes down, they would still be holding to that banner. That is steadfastness. And that is victory. We don't think in terms of this worldly uh, 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 material, uh, we don't think in terms of the worldly material aspects, but we think in terms of what will happen in Akhirah. يوم القيامة. Allah wa taala says, وفي ذلك فَلِيَتَنَافِسِ المتنافسون. Competition should not be on dunya. Competition is praise when it is in Akhirah. إِنَّ هَذَا al Fawzul Jannah is the great victory. So Islam corrected their concepts. So we have to have those concepts with us. We need to have steadfastness on our religion. And I'm saying this because as a minority, you will go through similar situations the Muslims went through in Mecca. Every single method, Every single attempt of leading the Muslims away from their religion was used. And no doubt, as a Muslim minority, wherever you're living, you're going to go through the same things. The people of Quraysh used the methods of persecution. They used the method of trying to get a compromise. What do? They came to Rasulullah ﷺ and said, Listen, you're insisting on us worshipping Allah, we agree. How about we worship Allah for one day and you worship our idols for another day? Rasulullah wa said no. They came back again with another offer. How about if we worship Allah for a week and you worship our gods for one day? Rasulullah wa said no. They said how about if we worship Allah for a month and you just give us one day? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, قُلْ يَا kafirun لَا مَا تَعْبُدُونَ O you disbelievers, I will not worship what you worship. They wish that you would compromise so that they can compromise with you. Why? Because their religion is man-made. They can compromise in it, they can change it, they can alter it. But with us, we don't control the religion. The religion is from Allah. What does Islam mean? It means you submit. Whether you like it or not, you accept what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from you. We do not have authority to change or alter the religion. عُتْبَة bin He came to Muhammad and said, he told him, uh, you have criticized our religion. You have reviled our forefathers. You have caused dissent among us. We have never seen a fool who has caused his people so much harm as you did. And we have never seen anyone who has been such an evil omen on his people like you are. Now, listen, Muhammad, your, your elders have got together. And they decided to offer you a few things. Oh, Muhammad, if you are presenting us this message because you are searching for power, we will make you the leader among us. If you are presenting us with this message because you want to become a king, we will appoint you as the first king among us. O Muhammad, if you are presenting us with this message because you are in need of wealth, then we will collect money for you and make you the wealthiest among us. O Muhammad, if you are presenting us this message because of desire of worldly things, we will choose for you the best-looking ten women in Mecca and marry them all to you. O Muhammad, if you are presenting us with this message because you you are obsessed with demons, we will bring you the best physicians to heal you, even if we have to spend all of our money in the process. Look at all of these offers. Imagine if these were presented to you. I'm sure some of you are now saying, no, no, it's not, it's not going to work with me. Let me ask you this. If you think so, let me ask you this. Don't raise your hands. Uh, I'm just going to ask the question, answer it to yourself. How many of you attend Salat al-Fajr every day? If the answer is i don't then answer this question if there was an offer made to give you 50 pounds every day you show up to salat al-fajr will you attend 50 pounds every day you attend salat al-fajr so you go to the masjid by the time you leave you're handed 50 pounds Will you miss Salat al-Fajr? Be honest to yourself. So brothers, if 50 pounds makes a difference in you going to the masjid or not, what about if you're offered to be a king, the most beautiful woman will marry you and all of these wonderful offers. So... All of these temptations were presented to the Muslims in Mecca. They tried to seduce them. And when Sarrah didn't work, then they used darah. When offers, good offers didn't work, then persecution came into play. As Muslims, we will go through this. This is the sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I mean, it's something that will uh, no doubt happen. Uh, they used uh, physical pain Khabbab ibn al-Arat was in, in, a, in a gathering And uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab when he was Khalifa He asked Khabbab ibn al-Arat He told him uh, What was the worst thing that you went through When you were in Mecca Khabbab ibn al-Arat radiallahu anhu He didn't answer by words He just uncovered his back Amr al Khattab saw deep black holes in his back. Amr al Khattab said, I have never seen something like that. What is this? Khabbab al Arad said, The people of Mecca would bring these uh, hot coals and they would drop them on my back and they would burn through my skin and reach to my flesh and I would. Smell my fat burning. They went through physical pain. You know what happened to Bilal. You know what happened to Ammar. They had to put their lives on the line. Ammar, uh, his, both of his parents were killed. Sumayya was stabbed in her private parts and she died. Yasser was killed. Wealth. They had to give up their wealth. Sahib so, hey, al-Rumi radiyallahu anhu. When he was leaving Mecca, he was making hijrah. Uh, some of the non-believers of Quraysh pursued him. And then they captured him and told him, Sahib, you came to Mecca when you were a poverty-stricken beggar. Sahib so, hey, was a Roman. He came to Mecca. He was broke, and he became wealthy. So they told him, you came to Mecca as a poverty-stricken beggar. And among us, you became wealthy and you attained status. And now you want to take yourself and your wealth and leave us by God, that will not happen. By the way, brothers, uh, a day might come when this would happen to Muslims in the West. They would tell you, listen, you came here as workers, you became wealthy, you can't leave and take your wealth with you. What will you do when that day comes? So Hayyb told them, what if I give up all of my wealth? Will you release me? They said yes. So he told them where he buried his wealth. And he reached Mecca. And as soon as Rasulullah وسلم saw, saw him coming in, he told him, "Rabiha الْبَيْعَ أَبَى what a profitable trade. What a profitable trade. Sohaib said this must have been a revelation given to you by Allah because no one knew about this incident except me and them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told Muhammad about what happened. So Muhammad conveyed the good news to Sahib and told him that was a profitable deal. SubhanAllah, you lose all of your money, but then it's a profitable deal. See how the concepts are changed. In Islam, a new definition is given to them. So he gave up his wealth for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We have to prepare ourselves, we have to be ready to give up whatever our religion demands life, wealth, time, everything. You can't get Jannah for free. There's no free ride to paradise. Allah inna Jannah. Rasulullah says that Jannah is expensive. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is offering you an expensive thing, and that is Jannah. Number four. And this is a lesson we can learn from the Muslims living in Al-Habasha. The Hijrah to Abyssinia. One thing we notice about the Muslims living in Abyssinia is even though they were not... They, it was not, uh, uh, the Muslims living there were not under an official authority. They did not have a Muslim government. Their situation was like us. They were living in an established society with an established government. Nevertheless, the Muslims were organized. They were not loose like we are in the West. The Muslims were organized. They had a jama'ah and they had an Amir. They were not living alone. They were not doing their own thing. Like the situation with us in the West, everybody, we just everyone is free, we just do whatever we want. The Muslims had a leadership, which was Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, and they were a group, a group called Al-Muhajirun al-Habasha, they had a title and a name, they were living in Al-Habasha, they were Al-Muhajirun al-Habasha, and they had an Amir, they had a spokesman, they were organized. You wouldn't find any one of them sneaking from the back door, visiting a Najashi they would go through the official channel, and that is their leader, Ja'far ibn Abi Talib. He was their spokesman, he was their leader, they would not do anything unless they get permission from him. So they had an organization, they had a jama'ah, because they understood that this is a religion, that it is a social religion. It's not a religion that you can... It's not an individualistic religion. Our salah is in jama'ah. Hajj is in jama'ah. Many of the ibadat are done in jama'ah. And they retained that organizational framework when they were living in al-Habasha. One of you might say, because we can't apply this to Mecca, because Rasulullah ﷺ was obviously the leader. Well, when Rasulullah wasn't available, when they were in Habasha, they appointed one among them to be their leader. So this sensitivity to having any organized work, and this sensitivity to having a title over an organization is overreacting And I suspect that this is a government plot from the Arab governments to keep the Muslims disorganized and far away from organizing themselves because they know that this religion cannot proceed unless it's organized. You know, sometimes the enemy knows you better than you know yourself. No one knew Musa better than Firaun. No one knew Musa better than Firaun. And that's why he was speaking to his people from the very early days and saying, we are all very cautious. We need to be cautious because of this person. While the rest of the people of Egypt were seeing Musa as not being uh, uh, any threat to the system because he's one of the lower class, he's among, from among the slaves, Bani Israel. What danger could it be? But Firaun knew it very well. And governments in the Muslim world know. That organized work is a threat to them. And that's why they're spreading these ideas. Don't organize. Just be on your own. Be a Muslim. You don't have to come and participate in a group. And that's a false understanding. I hope hope that we can eliminate this ludicrous idea from our minds. Muslims have to be organized. We cannot march forward unless we are organized. So the Muslims in Habasha had an organization, had a leader, and they had a spokesman. And they wouldn't do their own thing. They were binded by what the group is doing. Uh, The fifth lesson that we can learn from the Muslims living as a minority in Mecca is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was teaching them in the laws of Allah. Just like there are laws of Allah in nature, which we refer to as the laws of nature wrongly, because these are not laws of nature, these are laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there are laws that govern human lives. There are laws in sociology, in physiology, uh, in in, uh, physiology, and in geology, in uh, in history, there are laws that govern our lives. Psychology, uh, as Muslims, we need to study these laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And uh, when Rasulullah first received the message, Khadija ﷺ took him to Waraka bin Nu'fal, an old man with experience and wisdom. So Waraka bin Nu'fal asked Rasulullah about what has happened to him. When Rasulullah described his contact with for his first contact with the revelation. Waraka bin Nawfal immediately knew that this was Jibril alayhi salam descending on Muhammad with wahi. He said, And then he told Muhammad an interesting statement. Laytani kuntu fiha I wish that I were young when your people are going to drive you out of your land. This statement was a surprise to Rasulullah ﷺ. My people would drive me out of my land and Rasulullah ﷺ had every right to be surprised. First of all, because Muhammad ﷺ was the most beloved man in Quraysh. They all loved him. They adored him. They called him a al amin the truthful and the honest. And then Muhammad ﷺ had no quarrel with them. How come they would drive him out of his land? Third of all, he came from the most noble family in Quraysh. He was the grandson of Abdul Muttalib. The head of Quraysh. How could they drive me out of his land? So Rasulullah ﷺ asked Waraka, Would they drive me out of my land? Warqa bin Nawfal told Muhammad, ﷺ, Yes. No one has presented his people with anything similar to this, but they were driven out of their land. This is Allah of Allah. These are words of wisdom who came from the mouth of a man who studied history. Who studied religion. Who knew about the history of the prophets. He knew what happened to Jesus a.s. What happened to Musa a.s. Ibrahim a.s. Lut a.s. They all made hijrah. Hud, Saleh, they made hijrah. Shu'aib made hijrah. Hijrah was part of the lives of most of the MBI of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Waraqa was trying to teach Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa these laws of Allah. You would be driven out of your land. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was teaching the Muslims about the concept of Ibtila. This law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you would be tested. If you're a Muslim, you would be tested. Have no doubts about that. You would be tested. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was teaching the Muslims about uh, human nature. Your neighbors might be very nice, very decent people, very pleasant. But that might not necessarily be the correct assessment of the society you're living in. Because the regular people, the laymen, are not the ones who make the decisions. Just like we heard yesterday by our brother Abu Montasr, 70% of the British population don't vote. These are your nice neighbors, the decent people you meet on the street. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is teaching us something about human nature. That on the top, The people who are making the planning and leading the people, they might not necessarily be like the people you meet on the streets. Not everybody in Mecca was evil, but the leadership was evil. Not everyone among the people of Thamud was evil, but the leadership was. In fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that among the people of Thamud, the ones who were plotting, planning, executing the plan, were only nine people, and the whole tribe, the whole clan, the whole town of Thamud, Allah subhanahu wa taala says, wa kanna fil Madinah t'isaa turhatun yufsiduna fil ardh walayyulahoon. Among the whole society of Thamud, there were nine people who were causing the corruption among the people, and Allah subhanahu wa taala says, wa kathalika jaalna fi kulli qariyatin akabra mujrimiyah liyamkuro fiha. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and thus have we made leaders in every society, the corrupt among the society, and they are the ones who are planning wickedness in the society. And these are the ones who are described in Qur'an as being al mala The word for them in Qur'an is al Mela. So the regular Joe six-pack and Sally soccer mom are not the ones who are making all of these problems. It is the ones on the top who are plotting and planning and executing the plan. This is where the evil is emanating from. And the mela in every society could be different than others. You know, in the society of Egypt, Firaun might have some different characteristics than the Roman emperor, than the leadership of Persia. But they have a common denominator. There are some common traits among them. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was teaching the Muslims about these uh, concepts. And uh, this would lead me to the uh, uh, following point. Uh, since we are Muslims living in the West, I think we should give special atten- attention to the ahadith that talk about the West. Because this is what should concern us most. And Rasul Rasulullah sallallahu described al-Havasha, he described a turk uh, he described Ya'juj al-Ma'juj, he described the Persians... Uh, but what concerns us are the hadith that talk about the Romans, since we are living... And by the way, when I use the word Romans, the word Romans in hadith is referring to Europe and the European people. I mean, that is how they were described in hadith, al the Romans. So, uh, uh, the word Romans in hadith is, is talking about Europe and its extensions. Australia, the United States, and the uh, Western Hemisphere... Uh, It's the culture that emanated from the Roman Empire. Uh, Now, a word of warning when we're dealing with the Ahadith of Fitan. Uh, Too much immersion in in the Ahadith of Fitan could uh, make the person fatalistic. So we need to be careful when we're dealing with the hadith of fitan. Completely ignoring them is not right. And too much emphasis on the hadith of fitan is not right. We need to take a middle path. And I think uh, this hadith would give us sort of an understanding, a a right understanding on how to deal with these matters. Uh, In Musnad al-Imam Ahmad, one of the sahaba, al-Mustawrad, he mentioned the hadith of Rasulullah He said, أَشَدُّ النَّاسِ عَلَيْكُمْ الرُّومِ وَإِنَّمَا السَّعَىٰ Al-Mustawrad he says that your toughest rival will be the Romans. And they will not perish until the Day of Judgment. So what he's saying is that the Romans will be the spearhead of the effort in fighting Islam. And this will continue until the Day of Judgment. Amr ibn al-As told al-Mustawrad, "Alam azjurka an Amr ibn al-As told al-Mustawrad, didn't I tell you not to speak or not to say such things? Amr ibn al-As did not want to propagate such a hadith, even though Rasulullah ﷺ said them, because he did not want it to lead into a fatalistic view among the Muslims. Especially that Amr ibn Aas was in a conflict with the Roman Empire at the time. And he was winning. So he doesn't want the Muslims to feel that this is a, 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 a worthless fight. Especially that he has won the jewel of the Roman Empire, Egypt. So we need to be careful when, we, when we're dealing with the hadith of Fitan, But in the same time, we don't want to entirely hide them. And I was really debating with myself whether I should talk about this or not. Uh, so I'm, I'm saying that we need to be careful when we're dealing with the ahadith of fitan. These are news about the future, events that will happen, but these are not ahadith of Sharia. They are hadith that are conveying to us news. And they should not change our view to the Sharia. The Sharia is binding to us whatever will happen. No matter what will happen, the Sharia is binding on us. We need to continue making dawah, even if we know that the person in front of us will not become a Muslim. And when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that Abu Lahab is going to hellfire, did that mean that Rasulullah stopped giving him da'wah? No. Sharia is one thing and the Akbar is another. Uh, the Western world, since we're living in the Western world, we need to look to give a fair assessment to it. The Western world tends to be the furthest from the natural disposition, al-fitrah. The reason is, the Western world has been the furthest away from the true message of Allah. As far as we can trace history, the West has not been exposed to the true message of Allah. The Islamic da'wah is very weak here, and the fault is ours. And before that, the brand of Christianity that reached the shores of Europe was already distorted to render it a false religion. So Europe has been living away from the light of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a very long time and that's why it tends to be away from fitra because of that. Now... If you notice with uh, the situation of the Western world uh, or the ahadith in which Rasulullah sallallahu talks about a rum the ahadith make it very clear that Arum are going to be the spearhead of the effort in fighting the light of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You can also uh, give the West credit of being the first society in the world to produce enough Weapons to wipe out the entire world. It has never happened or occurred in history that one society would produce enough weapons to bring the whole civilization of the world to a halt. And it's ironic that we find the same governments who own these weapons are talking about the small miserable bombs that Saddam Hussein and others might have. I mean, he has weapons of mass destruction, therefore we need to bomb him. While the U.S. has in its stockpile enough weapons to wipe out the entire human race. The West, or Europe, can be credited with wiping out the indigenous population of three continents of the world. And that's also an unprecedented act in history. North America, South America, and Australia. The indigenous population was wiped out. They only left a few as artifacts for anthropological studies. Christianity, the the distorted form of Christianity that existed in the time of Rasulullah even though it was distorted, was a very peaceful religion. When it reached to Europe, it was turned into a violent religion. And from being a peaceful religion, now we can fairly say that there is no religion in the history of mankind that has caused more bloodshed than Christianity. And it's also ironic to see that the Western world is accusing Islam of being a violent religion. Study it objectively, you will find that in the history of mankind, no religion has caused more bloodshed than Christianity. That's a matter of fact. That is history. And that's why Rasulullah ﷺ, when he talks about Rome, rum doesn't refer to them as a nasara Talks about them as Rome, The Romans. Because the Christians in the time of Rasulullah sallallahu I mean, when you read about them, when you read about Christianity in Abyssinia and Najashi, when you read about the Christian, the, the Christian Arabs who existed in Asham, uh, you read about them. These were people devoted to worship. They were monks in monasteries who did not involve in fighting, and that's why Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, I mean, Abu Bakr Siddiq anhu, when he was sending his armies to Asham, he made it very clear. Do not come close to the monks. Don't harm them. Because these are people who devoted themselves to worship. That is not the current situation of Christianity. Why? Because of the European involvement in the religion of Christianity. Uh, Islam has never entered into a society and left. Never. Especially when it enters into a society... In the form of a government. Islam entered into Egypt. Egypt was Christian. Now the Egyptians are among the most enthusiastic Muslims. Islam entered into uh, North Africa. And now they're Muslims. Islam entered into India. And was ruled by the Mughals, Muslims. Even though in their practice, sometimes it wasn't very Islamic. But Islam remained in India. Even after, after the Mughals left. Now there are 150 million Muslims in India. Islam never reached to the shores of Southeast Asia in the form of an army or a, or a government. Nevertheless, the largest Muslim country is Indonesia. There is only one exception to this rule. There is only one part of the world where the Muslims reached and stayed And when they left, no traces of Islam remained. And that is Spain. Never in the history of the entire world has Islam entered into a place and been diminished, except in Europe. Even though the Muslims stayed in Spain for 800 years, and not only were the Muslims there, but it was the center of the Muslim civilization for a while. The best uh, 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 scientific writings were produced by the Muslims in Spain, among the best. And Islamic law flourished in Spain for 800 years. It was the hotbed of Maliki fiqh. The Maliki books, you would find that a large proportion of them come out of Spain. And now there's not one single Muslim that remains in Spain and they can trace themselves back to the Muslims of Spain. So we're dealing with a unique culture. And now if the West is very tolerant and liberal and democratic. But morally, it has never left the dark ages. So this is the situation that we are dealing with. Now, what will happen uh, in the future? uh, There is a, a... How many minutes do I have left? Five minutes. I still have uh, some other ahadith that uh, talk about the future, ahadith of Al Fitan. Uh, I'll maybe talk about uh, some of them, not all, because we're running out of time. Uh, There's a book written by Naeem ibn Hamad, the Sheikh al al Bukhari. he is tikka. the scholars of hadith accept his hadith however he wrote a book about al fitan about the end of times and uh, the, the the hadith in this book are strong and weak our early scholars when it came to matters of sharia they would only use strong hadith as evidence But when they were dealing with history, when they were dealing with the end of time, when they were dealing with faday al-a'mal, some of them tended to be more flexible. Now, uh, some scholars, they stick to the rule of authentic all through, and some don't. You look at Ibn Kathir, for example. He's a scholar of hadith. But when he came to al fitan and when he came to history, he would include a hadith that are weak. So I'm, I'm mentioning this as a disclaimer uh, to say that some of these ahadith might not necessarily be strong. The problem is this book hasn't, a uh, hasn't been done on this book to sift through the ahadith and determine what is strong and what is weak. Uh, until that work is done, then we will not be able to distinguish. But uh, I will mention some of these ahadith with the disclaimer that some of them might not be strong. Rasulullah says about the end times now, There's a statement that is mentioned in an authentic hadith. Let me mention this first. That da'wah will flourish in the West. And many Westerners will become Muslim. And they will be with the Muslims. So that also needs to be mentioned. And this is mentioned in authentic hadith. That Islam will spread and many of the people in the West will become Muslim. However, the majority won't. And the majority who won't become Muslim are going to be the spearhead of, in the effort of fighting Islam. Uh, I will have to cut this short. I have two minutes left. So I'll skip these hadith and jump to, the, to what will be the fate of the Muslims in the West. Now again, this is a hadith out of the book of Naim bin Hamad. It could be authentic. It could be weak. However, I believe that regardless of the sanad of this hadith, I believe that the meaning of it is true. If you study history, I think you will reach to the same conclusion. Rasulullah says, ثُمَّ يَعْدُ الرُّوم عَلَى من بأرضهم من العرب. فَيَقْتُلُوهُمْ حَتَّى لَا يَبْقَى بِأَرْضِ الروم عَرَبِيٌّ وَلَا عَرَبِيَّةٌ وَلَا ولد عربي إلا قتل. Rasulullah says, the Romans are going to approach all of the Arabs who are living in their midst. And every Arab man and woman and child will be killed. They will all be exterminated. A Holocaust. Now, the hadith didn't say Muslims, it said Arabs. But this is an acceptable form of expression in Arabic to use the part to express the whole. It is acceptable in, Arab to, in, in Arabic to use a part of a group to describe the whole. To add a particular emphasis to this group. And it makes sense that the uh, Arabs would go through an added persecution for a few reasons. Number one, you find that in the Western literature, there is a a a, a strong dislike to anything that is Arab. Arab culture, Arab land, Arab uh, tradition. You find this uh, racial tone in Western literature. Number two, the focal point of the events of the end of time is going to be Palestine. That will be the center of the the, uh, end of time events. It will be in the Holy Land. You find that the hadith of al-fitan are all revolving around Palestine. So quite naturally, the people who are closest to this focal point, are going to be affected the most. But you should not understand this to mean that everybody else will not go through this. It is just to add an emphasis to this particular group among Muslims. Because in the authentic hadith that I mentioned to you, that many Westerners will become Muslim, the hadith goes on to say that the leader of the Roman army will ask the Muslims to give up to hand over all of the Romans who became Muslim. They want to take them back and kill them. But then the Muslim leader will say, we will never give up our brothers. So Islam does not recognize ethnicity. If you're a Muslim, you're part of the ummah. You become a brother of the rest of the ummah. So the Muslims will refuse to give up the Romans who became Muslim because they're part of the ummah. So the persecution will not strictly be to the uh, uh, Arabs. It will include others. Uh, I have to take a few more minutes. I don't want to close on this pessimistic tone. We have to uh, have a better ending. Uh, Islam will flourish all over the world. Allah subhanahu wa taala says that Islam will enter into every home. And Rasulullah sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says the whole world was shown to me and Allah told me that my religion will reach all of it. Uh, I finally want to say that as minorities living in the West, we are binded by the fiqh of minorities. And there's a lot to be said about the fiqh of minorities. I will leave it to the scholars, but a few things that we can mention – is that the Fiqh of minorities is the Fiqh of Rasulullah in Mecca, and that is Kuffu Aidyakum. Kuffu Our Dawa in the West is a peaceful Dawa. It is we are not allowed to commit aggression, to pick up arms. It is a Dawa of patience and sabr. Kuffu Aidyakum. The Muslims in Mecca and the Muslims in Abyssinia did not fight. It was a peaceful da'wah. If you disagree with this fiqh, then go and find a land where the fiqh is the fiqh of fighting. Because the ummah is not ruled by the same fiqh. In every particular situation, there is a fiqh that pertains to that situation. Al-fatwa depends on the time and place. The fiqh of Muslim minorities is kuffu aidiakum. You do not fight back. You do not strike back. That's the fiqh of Muslims in the West. And the jihad of the Muslims in the West is the jihad which Allah prescribed in Quran. Your jihad is with Quran. Your jihad is by...